of God's Word, find the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John. Toward the end of your Bible. And it's common to hear the phrase, seeing is believing. And that certainly does have a grain of truth to it. That The Bible actually presents us with another way. The Bible would present to us that believing is seeing. That there are things in life that in order to believe, you do have to see, but that there are things in life that before you can ever truly begin to understand them, you have to believe first. Consider this. How do you know when you were born? Or where? Or by whom? Well, through all of these, you were there, right? You were there on the day of your birth, but you're reliant ultimately on the testimony of others, of your mom and your dad, of the doctors who may have been present, even of the testimony of other family members. We're reliant on faith for the place, the date, and the family of our birth, even though that's a historical event. It's something that's happened behind us, set in stone. This odd question really provides an example between what it's like to do history and what it means to do science. See, when you, when you want to do something scientifically, answer a scientific question, there's a scientific method, right, of observation and testing in order to prove something in the present. But it's a little harder to test the date and the place of your birth because you can't, you can't go back there. You can't travel back in time to that day. You have to rely on the observations of those who were present, of contemporary testimony, and of witnesses who were there to see and hear and experience these things. We must be careful when we ask questions to make sure we ask those questions with the right tool in our hand. And today, we begin a sermon series all about asking questions, big questions with big answers. And we find the answers to many big questions in three short letters of the Apostle John, starting in the book of 1 John. And the first answer we're going to get is a historical question. How can I know Christianity is true? John really does start at the foundation, at the most foundational part of our faith. How do we have any confidence that any of this that we've been singing about is true? And he starts there in the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's look there together. God's word says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which you have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of God. And here we see John starting his letter by simply kind of addressing the question, is our faith true? How can we know 
about any of these claims of our faith. And he begins at this very foundational level as he's writing this letter to churches in a place called Ephesus. Now, you'll notice this letter is a lot different from other letters in your New Testament. Your New Testament is full of letters. And this one's a little different. It doesn't have a greeting. It doesn't have a salutation. Really, John almost sort of writes out a sermon transcript and sends it out to the churches and hope that it would be read aloud and that it would instruct them. And then the book of 2nd and 3rd John that we'll look at later really serve as sort of cover letters, both to the church and to the leaders of the church. And so John begins with this church at a foundational level. He recognizes that there are many people in church that have questions and that's okay. I don't know when we ever got to the place of saying that we couldn't bring our questions to church. Friends, it's not about whether you have questions or not. It's what you do with them. And, it's many, of, and many of us even need a reminder. And that's okay. He wants to answer for them and us by extension. Why is our faith true? Why are we doing all of this? And notice that in order to answer the question, he focuses his attention on the person of Jesus. And the first four verses almost build in suspense. We don't even find out who he's talking about until the end of verse 3. He says, we've seen this, we've heard this, we've touched it, we've experienced all of this, and his name is Jesus. And he recognizes that what makes Christianity unique is the Christ within it. And he goes to answer this question from three different angles. How can I know Christianity is true? First, he appeals to history. He appeals to history. John is answering a historical question about a historical person. Jesus came into the world. Jesus existed. He wasn't a myth. He wasn't a dream. And friends, consider this. It was a lot harder for people in John's day to deny this. It was a lot harder for people in, in John's day to begin to deny whether Jesus existed or not because they are within a generation of Jesus' ministry and many people who saw these things were still alive and walking around. You go talk to them and sit on their front porch and hear the stories. But it's important to us now 2,000 years removed to recognize that Jesus existed. And we don't just have to take the apostles' word for it. Jewish historian Josephus, you can look up his life at a later time, he lived during the lifetime of the apostles, and he's, he wrote the most extensive and detailed history of the Jewish people that there is. And he even detailed uh, the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And he wrote a book called Antiquities, and in that book, he actually makes two clear references to Jesus to Jesus being a real person who was crucified and who at least the apostles claimed was risen from the dead. Though Josephus wasn't a Christian, he was a contemporary historian who could attest to the fact that Jesus did, in fact, exist. In fact, the idea that Jesus didn't exist is really kind of a modern invention. You'll hear a lot of people talk about scholarship. Well, sometimes you need to put air quotes around that, right? There is some so-called scholarship that says Jesus never existed. But friends, hear me, the theories behind it are questionable at best, and they really have to assume that modern-day people are so much smarter than anybody who came before us. There's really sort of, a, sort of, a, sort of a, a pride about it as well. We've got everything in front of us. 
How could, how could people before us who wrote books and created all the great works of history be smarter than us who have TikTok, right? But John isn't simply writing to people to convince them that Jesus existed. That was pretty easy for these folks in this day to, to, to believe that and to know that, right? They could have talked to thousands of witnesses of his life to confirm that. Jesus was convinced in convincing them of who Jesus was. Not that Jesus was simply a man or a teacher or a prophet or a rabbi, but Jesus was God in flesh. Notice how John refers to Jesus. We'll look at these kind of in rapid fire here. In verse 1, we read that he is the one who is from the beginning. Verse 2, he is the life which was from the Father. And in verse 3, he is called the Son of God and the Christ. You know, Christ was not Jesus' last name. I want you to know that. This is helpful. It wasn't as if it was Mary Christ and Joseph Christ had Jesus Christ. No, no. Jesus was his name and Christ was his title, right? He was Jesus Christ, Messiah, the promised one. He's not simply a man, according to John, because this isn't how you speak of a man. This is how you speak of one who is Lord and God. And to be the Son of God is a very unique title. In fact, Jesus called himself the Son of God in his ministry, and we see this particularly back in John's gospel, and the Pharisees knew what he meant. You can look back here at John chapter 5, verse 18, back in the gospel, the sort of biography of Jesus that John wrote, and he said this, This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, him being Jesus, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was healing people, on the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, see it, making himself equal with God. So many people think of son of God as if, well, there's the father, and then the son is somehow below him, but in what, what, the, what they would have understood in that time, what Jesus was saying was not that he was lesser than the father, but he was making himself equal with the father, Consider the very first verses of the book of John that begin to channel not only the book of Genesis, but really echo what we see here in 1 John as well. John chapter 1, these are famous words here. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then down in verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John appeals to history. Jesus existed. But his driving force isn't that we simply know that Jesus was, but that we know who Jesus is. See, to know Jesus generally and generically is not to know Jesus at all. It would be like telling you, like if you were never to have met me and I said, well, you know, I'm an eight-foot-tall, muscular-built NBA player. You all know I'd be lying to you, and you have the wrong person, don't you? 
And, just, and, and in the same way, when we describe Jesus as simply a man without reference to his deity, we do not get the correct picture of Jesus. We don't get the right person. And so John appeals to history. Jesus existed and walked among us. But John doesn't simply appeal to history. He appeals second to testimony. His followers have written to us. This is really what the bulk of this passage is about. It's not simply about the person of Jesus, but about John and the apostles with him, their own personal proclamation about Jesus. Look at verse 1. He says, That which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon, and which we've touched with our hands. Verse 2, he says it's made manifest or made abundantly clear. Verse 2, he says, we've seen it. This is the third time he has said something about, I saw it, I gazed at it, I looked at it intently. And then verse 3, the fourth time, that which we have seen and heard. Can he get the point across anymore? (laughs) I saw it. I can testify and proclaim it to you. And John is even saying, hey, it's not just me. He says he has a plural we there. He says, this, this isn't, don't just go on my word. There are 11 other apostles. The book of 1 Corinthians says that there were 500 witnesses who saw Jesus risen from the dead at one setting. That was just one time because he's walking around. You see, when he rose from the dead, he walked around for some 40 days after he ever ascended into heaven. And he says, all these people saw this guy who they publicly saw crucified and who now has risen from the dead. This is part of what makes Christianity so unique because our faith does not begin with a private revelation, but with a public manifestation. It wasn't simply with some word from an angel coming to somebody, but rather that Jesus is alive. Friends, hear me. An angel supposedly came to Joseph Smith, founder of Uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Mormonism, right? And supposedly told him where to find plates that he could translate uh, to, to translate the Book of Mormon. And yet, no plates have ever been found. And only a small group of his own family, who became leaders in the church, saw and testified to it. Muhammad Famous, the, the, the kind of foundational prophet of, of, uh, of Islam, supposedly received a private revelation from an angel as well. And both of these men, Joseph Smith and Muhammad, made claims about who Jesus is that's different from what the Bible says. And hear this, both men lived long after Jesus. Why would we want to believe their testimony about him over first-hand accounts? It'd be like wanting to believe what somebody today has to say about Abe Lincoln, who has nothing to do with Abe Lincoln, over one of the people who were closest to him when he lived and walked. No, you may want to stop me right here and say, but, but, but Pastor Matt, hear me. You haven't touched and seen and heard Jesus like the apostles did, and that's right. If you ever have somebody come to you and begin to call themselves an apostle, you need to go somewhere else. <laughs> Because they have not physically seen or touched uh, the risen Jesus and seen him in the way the apostles did. But when we consider the question of Jesus' death and resurrection, we're answering a historical question. Just like in the beginning when we were answering about the date of our own birth. 
We simply cannot answer certain questions using our senses or using the scientific method. We have to rely on testimony of others who were present, and that presents at least some extent of faith. Our culture is so caught up in, well, if I can't see it, smell it, touch it, it doesn't exist. And friends, there are lots of things in your life that you can't see, smell, touch, and experience with your senses that do exist. And we must do this when we come to gathering info about any historical figure. And we're fortunate that we have eyewitnesses, close companions of Jesus, who've left us four witnesses of his life and ministry, of his death and resurrection. We've got the four Gospels. And while this isn't a sermon about the validity of the Gospels, I would, I would call you to read through them one day with the eye of a historian and see how all four of them were contemporaries and actually able to talk to people and gather information. They were able to sort of do the, the 2020 special on who Jesus was and talk to people that were actually there. And incredibly, Jesus himself actually tells us that we are in a better place than the apostles were. Let me show you here. There's an appearance of Jesus after the resurrection to a guy named Thomas. And poor Thomas, he gets a really bad rap. What's Thomas known for? He's known as Doubting Thomas. And let me say something. If, if you'd walked with a guy who died and suddenly people were claiming that he rose from the dead and you hadn't seen him, I think most of us would have been a little skeptical too, right? Let's, let's not be so hard on poor Thomas when it could have been doubting your name being inserted in there. But John records an interaction in John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And look what we see here. John chapter 20, verse uh, 24. Now Thomas, who was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. This is after his resurrection. He's popping up all these places, right? And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and the place of my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will not, I will never believe. Now, again, many of us, I think, would have been like Thomas here if we're honest and didn't have sort of the, the church face of I never doubt on, right? I, I think I probably would have been and gone, well, I'll see it. If I see it, I'll believe it. And he's about to get his world rocked. Look what happens next. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the door was locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. So they're sitting here having a get-together, probably on a Sunday. It's eight days later, so they're hanging out, doing fellowship meal. They've got the door locked, and Jesus just transports himself through a locked door. And I love how he does it, and then he tries to calm them down, like, hey, I know I just did this, but peace be with you. I'm like, bro, I'm, I'm out. I'm... Then he goes right to Thomas, and he brings up something. Remember, Thomas shared in private with some people, and Jesus says, hey, I know you told those guys that you didn't believe this. Come check it out. Come check it out. And Thomas's response should be our response. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He worships and says, this is the one true and living God. 
And then Jesus puts a punchline on the whole encounter. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Notice that. He says, we're actually more blessed on this side because, one, we've got to live by a level of faith the apostles, in one sense, didn't have to have. Two, we've really got to, got, to, got to step forward in trusting God's word and believing these testimonies. And also, we get to enjoy the Holy Spirit in a way the apostles really didn't get to, at least at that moment. And we also step into a greater experience of faith and thus into a greater experience of joy. And this is actually where John ends this section of 1 John. He talked about the history. Jesus came. He existed. We even have secular, non-Christian historians that said, yeah, that Jesus guy, I don't really know what to make of him, but he definitely was around. We have testimony. John and others walked with him for three years. Yet others that knew him growing up and knew his mama and his daddy and could tell you what's going on here. And finally, he appeals to joy. He appeals to joy, the experience of faith. And look at verse 3 of 1 John chapter 1. Now which we've seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Do you notice this? The experience of faith, joy and fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. Experience can be evidence, even if it's subjective, if it has historical objective evidence to come alongside it. He's not simply saying, well, if you feel it's true, it's true, because that will get you in all kinds of trouble. But he's saying, hey, your actual experience of this is evidence because there's so much else to go alongside it. Verse 3 describes this fellowship, this relationship with God, and it uses a Greek word called koinonia, which carries an idea of close communion. Think of a marriage or of a family, the picture of walking with Jesus. And he says relationship here requires knowledge, but also requires true communion that requires an experience of joy, and faith is the instrument, the means, the channel by which we experience this communion with God. By faith, we know God, and through faith, we enjoy God. Imagine if today I had shown up to church and my wife wasn't with me, and you came up to me and said, give me evidence that your wife exists. I could pull out a photo. You go, well, you can Photoshop that. How do I know that's your wife? You can, I could pull her up on the phone and go, hey, babe, talk to these people, but you don't know that that's my wife. It could be some imposter. I could have called some random lady out that was standing out by the interstate. I could even physically bring my wife in here and bring them, but you might somehow be convinced that you're dreaming or hallucinating. When it comes down to it, I know that my wife exists because of the relationship I have with her. Regardless of what excuse others might make, that my wife doesn't exist, I know her because she is. And when it comes down to it, I can say because of my relationship with her, there's going to be skeptical people in your life that no matter how much evidence you give them, they're not going to believe something. 
And that's okay. I'm thankful that God doesn't call me to convince people of anything. He simply calls me to be faithful to preach the word and to let it do its work. And that's why our faith must be built on both evidence and experience. There's always going to be people with conspiracies that will think we fake something or won't put something all together. And even though we've seen it with our eyes and ears, don't believe what your eyes and ears see. This is why communion with God is based on evidence and experience, faith and joy in our fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And this leads three questions that I want each of us to ask ourselves as we think about our relationship with God. First, we need to ask ourselves, do we know about God or do we truly know God? Because there's a huge difference between those things. I can know all kinds of information. You know this if you're married. You can know all kinds of info about your wife, but it's a whole lot different than actually knowing your wife personally and knowing well. Consider this. 1 Corinthians tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, over 500 people saw Jesus alive in one setting. Yet when you open up the book of Acts, which happens after that event, there were only 120 people in the early church when Jesus ascended. You can even be convinced with your eyes that Jesus rose from the dead, yet Jesus not be your Lord. What you ultimately need aren't more reasons to have faith. You need a relationship through faith. Another problem is that many of us are tempted to believe that Jesus is a means to an end. Some of us are tempted to just tack Jesus on to the life we're pursuing. Well, I want money, so I'm going to try to tack Jesus on so that I can get some more money or success or fame or the good life or whatever it is. But friends, Jesus isn't something we tack on to the journey for the good life. Jesus is the good life. Jesus is the end we must pursue because in him is found the words of life. We were created to know Jesus and enjoy him forever. Even though we haven't seen him, the apostle Peter puts words around this for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. I love this. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Can we say the experience of Peter is like ours? Would you say that your life would be marked by a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? Is Jesus simply a means to an end? Or is he the source of your life? Is Jesus simply a means to an end? Or is he the end by which all of your life is working toward? Do we live in light of the day that we'll see him face to face? Are we building our own kingdoms here? Or are we longing for God's kingdom to come in fullness? If Jesus isn't your all in all, then Jesus isn't anything at all. Let me close a sermon about questions. With a final question, we've seen the evidence from history. We've seen eyewitnesses, John and others who've seen Jesus, heard his teaching, touched the hands inside of him after he rose again. And we've heard, and many of us have experienced the joy and fellowship with Jesus. 
But now the ball is in your court. You may have to consider the question, what will you do with Jesus? Let's stand and let me close with a thought. Let's all stand together. As we prepare to worship, I want to ask you to consider what's at stake in what you do with Jesus. It's not simply a, a preference here or there. But the Bible paints a picture of God with two hands. Of course, this is a metaphor, right? With one hand, he is holding back the holy and righteous judgment. Do all of our sin, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is not just death temporally, but eternal death. And with one, he is patiently holding it back because the Bible says he is loving and merciful and patient, abounding in steadfast love. So today is one hand holding that back. You're here. You're hearing a sermon about Jesus. You've heard the gospel. Jesus has come, died for your sins, risen again from the dead, and you can have new life by trusting in him. He's been patient with that. But with another hand, he's extending out to you to come and to follow him, to take up your cross and to follow Jesus, to step forward in faith, knowing that you're not going to get all your questions answered first. Sometimes you've got to take a step in faith before you'll be truly begin to see and to understand. So with one hand, he's with patience holding this back, and with another, he's extending his hand in mercy and love. And one day, the Bible says, both hands are going to drop. There'll no longer be a chance to grab at his mercy, and all that will come upon you will be all that he's been holding back. And so the question is today, what will you do with Jesus? Will you take a step forward today to take hands, knowing that it's not simply coming forward that does anything. It's not grabbing my hand and praying with me that does anything. It's the posture of your heart. These outward acts are simply uh, sort of outward signs of what God's doing inside. But today, if you need to commit yourself to Jesus for the first time or recommit yourself to Jesus, today you can walk forward and do that. Nobody's going to be watching you. We're all going to be focused on our own stuff. But you can walk forward, pray, and do business with God today while he's given you time. In Jesus' life, eternal life, abundant and free, and we say these things to you so that our joy may be complete. As we prepare to worship, let's pray together. Father God, I pray right now that as we prepare to worship you, Lord, that we will ask ourselves if we truly do know you and love you and worship you with a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. We haven't seen you, yet we love you. You were good and kind in so many ways. We thank you that your son came to live a perfect life for us, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise again to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave on our behalf. And today I ask if there's somebody here who has not taken that step of faith to trust in you, that you'd have them to do that right now. But also pray you would remind us as your people and call us to consider the mission you've given to serve and to send and to go into the world as witnesses that we have seen and heard through the eyes of faith all that you've done. Be with us and be honored in these next moments. Let me ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond in song how great our God is.
gospel is true, and we're thankful for that. As we prepare to dismiss, just a reminder, if you need to make next steps, talk to somebody, maybe you walk out of here and really think, and, and the Lord really begins to work on you, you can always touch base with us with our Get Connected card that's back at the table, or online, you can do that there as well, and somebody will reach out to you uh, with next steps, with whatever uh, help there may be uh, that you may need uh, for Yes, for, what, for whatever God is doing in your life. So let's close with a benediction. Just a reminder again, Sean Dotson and his wife are here. So we're going to take probably about a five or so minutes for folks to kind of um, transition on. But if you want to stick around, stick around uh, to hear from Sean about um, the student ministry and a little bit about a hymn. So let's look together at a benediction from God's word. This from Second Peter, or from 1 Peter chapter 5. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.